Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. I'm delighted to say we're joined today by John Norton, who is our guide to all things technological and political as well, and also James Williams. And I'm going to get James to introduce himself in a minute, but I'll give you a little background as to why James is here, and he's going to be appearing on this podcast more than once. James is the winner of the inaugural Nine Dots Prize, which was a prize that offered $100,000. He's going to have to let me say that. He's won $100,000. For the best answer to a question. And the question was, are digital technologies making politics impossible? Full disclosure, I was one of the judges, so I didn't just see James's entry. I saw lots and lots of entries, and there were hundreds and hundreds To enter the prize, you had to write a 3,000-word essay, which was kind of your mini-answer to the question, and then the winner gets the money and has to write a book. So James will be in Cambridge at points over the next year writing the book, and we're going to check in with him about the book, how it's going, and how some of his thinking in answer to this question has changed. The other thing worth knowing about the prize is it was completely anonymous, so we had no idea who'd won until we'd awarded it, and then we discovered that it was James. So all of the entries which we read were anonymous. Some of them were poetry. Some of them were fiction. Most of them were non-fiction, but they were all sorts of kinds of answers to questions. It it was really interesting. But we were kind of excited because he could have been anyone, (laughs) could have been famous, could have been anything, to discover that uh, James is currently a PhD student, just finishing his PhD at the Internet Institute in Oxford. But before that, for 10 years, he worked at Google. So before we get on to the answer to the question, are digital technologies making politics impossible? It's good to hear a bit about what working at Google was like, because that's part of the answer. So what did you do there? So I worked at Google for just over 10 years, mostly in the advertising space initially, and then later on working on kind of more broadly, some advertising kind of processes, products and strategy broadly speaking. And it's worth saying, Google, it's not like a company where advertising might be a kind of add-on to the core of the business. Advertising is the business. It's majority of it, yeah, the vast majority. So what was your specific role there? What did you, what did they expect you to do? Yeah, so initially it was really helping really large advertisers figure out how to think about advertising in the digital world. And later on, it was kind of being at the intersection of the business side of the ads stuff and then the product side of things. So thinking about which ads products we needed to prioritize and where from a global standpoint. And the primary goal with everything that Google does is to maximize how often and for how long people use the platform. And the advertising side of that is to make sure that the adverts are targeted in a way to maximize revenue or targeted in a way to maximize what the clients want, what's the so advertising is kind of the dominant business model on the internet. And I think this is something that a lot of people don't really recognize. You know, when we use Facebook or Twitter or or when you're using Google search, when you're using these free products, they're not really free. You're still paying with your attention. And there are different types of advertising. And I think this is part of the, the problem right now is that we've lumped a lot of different sort of types of persuasion under this banner of advertising. But a lot of the advertising, it, it's not sort of trying to privilege your, your intentions. So like, I want to buy red running shoes. And so the, you know, the company links me up with someone who's selling red running shoes. It's more of like, you know, I'm on a page doing something and the advertising is just trying to capture my attention and then maybe hopefully direct it towards something else that I hadn't initially intended. So 
So I think that what I noticed looking across the industry when I was working at Google and since was that this whole you know attention economy, as it's sometimes called, was really getting bigger and bigger and more powerful and more persuasive. And it just wasn't on the uh, agenda of society to talk about. Most people don't even understand you know, that uh, the role ads play in newspaper revenue, which is like the oldest ad-supported media, much less with things like you know, these online products and services. So I think what I really realized was that we need to bring this question of this global competition for people's attention onto the societal agenda to, to talk about it, because I, I felt like politics and and ethics hadn't really properly addressed it. Bring the competition for people's attention to people's to attention. To our attention, exactly, yeah. Just going back to the, the what it's like to work at Google, um, you remember the novel by Dave Eggers, The Circle? Because what, what's very interesting about that novel is that although Dave Eggers swore blind, he had never been to Google and he had never been to Facebook. It seemed to many of us, and to some fairly knowledgeable observers, that it was a very good evocation of the mindset that rules in these organizations. The idea that somehow sharing is what you should do with your information. And secondly, that in a way, I think there's a phrase in the book that privacy is theft. Is that an accurate representation of the atmosphere in that company? I enjoyed my time at Google a great deal. And I learned a lot while I was there. Um, I still have many friends there. But I think, you know, what I, I've learned is that, you know, nobody goes into design to make people's lives worse. You know, nobody wants to create these you know, effects of distraction or these kind of political problems that I think are, you know, our technologies are really kind of contributing to right now. And I think that the values of a lot of these companies are good. I think it's just that sometimes there's a kind of oversimplification of how you get to those values and those goals. And I think there's also kind of something about the model of human nature that, that is in use. So, so for instance, a lot of times people might, might say, okay, well, you know, 100,000 people clicked on this link, that means it must have been valuable for them, must have been important, must have been relevant. And essentially what they're doing is kind of taking evidence of effective persuasion as evidence of intention. It really becomes a philosophical question. And then you left because having worked there, you wanted to study the world that was being built, not just by Google, but by this technology. Mm -hmm. So before we get on to your answer to the question, what was the initial goal of what you wanted to study? What was the question that you wanted to answer before the question that you were set by the prize to answer? So, I mean, I've, I've always been very optimistic about technology. Growing up, my, my father worked at Texas Instruments, which made the first uh, 16-bit home computer, which I think, even though it was done by Texas Instruments, I think it was manufactured here in the UK. So I've had a, a long history in my life of believing in the power of what technology can do. And when I was working you know, at Google, I, I had this kind of epiphany where I realized that there was more technology in my life than there'd ever been before, but it was kind of getting harder in some new sense to do the stuff I wanted to do with myself. And that didn't seem quite right because, you know, it seems like if technology is for anything, it's for helping us do the things we want to do better. And just to be clear, that wasn't because you were working at Google. That no, was because no. you were an inhabitant of the 21st century exactly, exactly. trying to function. Yeah. And I think, you know, a way I've, I put this now is that, you know, as Herbert Simon said in the 1970s, like when information becomes abundant, attention becomes the scarce resource. And I think we've approached both in design and analysis of technologies, we've approached it from the perspective that, you know, what they're doing is managing information fundamentally. And I think what I realized was we weren't really managing information, we were managing attention. And I think that shift in perspective is actually behind a lot of the confusion that's felt today, whether at collective or individual levels. I've really felt like this was a topic that was being 
ignored. You know, I didn't see a lot of work in ethics or politics on this this question of of you know the ethics of attention. And so I I wanted to just dive more deeply into it, and so that's why I went to the Oxford Internet Institute to to study this. What's been interesting about the discussion post Simon and until your essay is that most people seem to have treated attention as being some kind of undifferentiated good. And what's really intriguing about your essay for me was the fact that you said, no, it comes in different, three different types. You have a term for it, the spotlight, which is immediate awareness, and starlight, which is about one's goals and ambitions and the rest of it. And the third one is daylight, which is about reflection. I think it's a very interesting distinction. And as far as I know, nobody's made that before. Is that right? It lines up to some degree with kind of Harry Frankfurt's view of like the human will. And so I think one thing that is being joined here is, is kind of the question of attention and the question of will. So, you know, if, if attention is what technologies are, are competing for and attention, as James William James said, you know, the late 1800s, attention is the, the essential effort of will. And so then if will is the basis of democracy and of politics, then, you know, the attention economy, the competition for our attention is a competition to shape our will. And I think part of the challenge is that we've, we haven't had a good language for talking about this problem. And so there's kind of this language of attention and distractions. It's like Aldous Huxley even said in Brave New World Revisited that, you know, we'd fail to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. And I think part of the reason we fail to take them into account is because like we just haven't had words for them. Part of what I was trying to do in this, in this essay was piece through that territory using this language of attention and distraction. So yeah, in addition to the direction of your immediate awareness being attention, are there types of attention we have that, that enable us to pursue our longer term goals and, and, and higher values? And is there a way of thinking about our deeper cognitive capacities like you know reason, intelligence, reflection as a type of attention? Because most of our discussion has been scrabbling around in the undergrowth about distraction mm-hmm. and ignoring the bigger stuff. Exactly. I think when we think of distraction, I think we think of like, oh, you know, I was trying to read a book and then I saw an outrageous Trump tweet and, you know, my phone buzzed and it distracted me from reading. And 23 minutes later, I go back to my work. Yeah, yeah. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. Speak for yourself. But I think, you know, where we haven't thought about it in terms of distraction is at the level of habits or longer term goal pursuit. Just to relate to something you said earlier, given that advertising is the basis, the economic basis of this industry and the goal for Google and, and others is not directly persuasion it's simply to grab people's attention as you said the hope is not to kind of get someone to buy the shoes directly but simply to grab their attention when they're doing something else to make them aware of the shoes so is that another of the lines that's getting blurred in that we think of persuasion as one thing and grabbing someone's attention as something else you know we might have an old-fashioned view that advertising is is salesmanship salespersonship and attention grabbing is just about distracting them but actually those two things have started to merge grabbing someone's attention has become a form of persuasion yeah i think it it certainly is a form of persuasion and we haven't always seen it as such and i think that's part of this kind of perspectival shift we need to take but you know within the advertising sometimes people talk about you know the, the funnel of advertising the purchase funnel so there's like awareness interest desire action and so the lowest level action what people sometimes call demand fulfillment this would be something like search ads. You know, if you're looking for something, they connect you with that something. So I think there, that's kind of the domain of intentions. And so I think that that's where actually where advertising can play a really great role. You know, if there was an ad that is a new entry into my world that helps me do something I want to do, that's a great thing. And I, and I think that's where we should move advertising toward. 
But I think the upper funnel uh, awareness, interest, desire, those stages, that's where grabbing the attention is is so important, right? It's like, you know, seeing the brand logo so that you have that brand top of mind when you're in the store. Again, I think the part of the, the weird thing about advertising now, which I don't think I've never heard anybody give, give a good definition of what advertising is. Because it's kind of everything. It, it's everything, yeah. It's, um, George Orwell said it was the rattling of a stick in a swill bucket. Mm. That's not very helpful for these purposes, but that's, he didn't like it much. Most of the advertising expenditure now is in these upper funnel stages where it's just about grabbing attention. We are getting better at, in the measurement infrastructure to, to tie the pieces of that funnel together to know if I show somebody a brand advertisement today and I show them two other ones in these other two media, they're more likely to you know actually purchase something farther down the line. It's kind of talked about under this term attribution. But I think what, what has happened though is that by making that kind of attention grabbing type of advertising the main business model of the internet, it's incentivize the creation of a certain type of content, right? So like clickbait or uh, these things where, you know, all they care about as, as a publisher is just getting you to look at the site. And so I think that that is, is a huge kind of feedback loop that, that is behind a lot of these, these situations of outrage, of narcissism, things like this that we feel like when we use social media, et cetera. So. Which connects to the question, because the question was about politics, you know, it, it might sound like there's quite a big gap between worrying about attention and a world where Donald Trump is doing whatever it is that he's doing, but you see them connected. I see them as the same, yeah. Oh, wow, you see them as the same. So just take us through the steps. I mean, you, you talked about things like clickbait, and that then leads on to the problem of fake news and so on. But you think in a world in which our attention is being colonized in this kind of insatiable way. I think, you know, like Harold Innes, the media theorist, like his whole line of research started from the question, why do we attend to the things to which we attend? And we attend to the information that the media that we use puts in front of us. And so political candidates, positions, et cetera, are, it's just a packet of information, just like, you know, a product I might buy at the store or whatever. Like it's all just informational packets coming at us and the system selects for some of those and not others. And so, and just to be clear, that predates the technology that we're talking about here. I mean, that is sure. that is a fact about. I mean, Schumpeter's famous yeah. definition of democracy from the middle of the twentieth century is it's yeah. basically a form of advertising. I think this is why we see political candidates tend to like embody what makes one successful in the media of the time. So, you know, the era of TV, we we literally had an actor as a president. Like the Terminator was literally <laughs> the governor of California, and I think we're in this new era now where the dynamics of the digital attention economy are the primary dynamics driving what gets put in front of us at a given time. And so I don't think it's any surprise that someone who embodies those dynamics better than anybody in the world would then be able to sort of hack the system in his own favor. So that's what you think got Trump elected, his ability to manage a world, navigate through a world in which attention is the scarcest resource. I mean, I don't think he just navigates it. I think he orchestrates it. I think this is what I think people don't recognize is how brilliant he is in what he's doing. And, and I'm by no means a, a supporter of any of his kind of projects or policies, but, but he understood far better the nature of the media they were dealing with and, and what they needed to do to be successful. I mean, he spent his whole life figuring out how to build himself up as a brand using the media. And so it makes sense that he would be so good at this. I mean, he's, he's essentially clickbait in human form, I think. And that's, that's summed up by a quote you use, I think, in the essay, which is the one from, I think, the head of CBS, who said, well, Trump may be bad for America, but he sure is good for TV. Yeah, it was Les Moonves, uh, the CEO of CBS, last February, who said, 
Donald Trump's candidacy may be bad for America, but it's damn good for CBS. And I think there's in that there's a lot of things, but one of them is the way in which the, you know some of the people who are behind the media, who design the media, understand its effects, but are just optimizing for these more petty goals. So like whether that's financial or whatever, as opposed to you know thinking, well, if it's bad for America or it's bad for even humanity, like maybe we should <laughs> rethink what we're doing. I remember I don't know the, the numbers, but I understand that the New York Times's readership is since Trump has been elected is is way up and. Look, think of it, it's full name, the failing New York Times, as he calls it. Oh, right, it. As, as Trump calls it. But the, the thing is, like, that is what helps them. So yeah, He I, calls them the failing New York Times, their readership goes up. That's the world we live in. Exactly. But, but I think what people, on, I think, on the left don't realize about what he's doing right now is that he's giving them the same sort of bait that he gave, like, his supporters during the, the, the campaign, and, and they're just taking that bait. And now I think that there's a real kind of rhetorical risk right now of going too far into those cycles of outrage when trying to kind of combat him and not, not being able to kind of come out of that later on. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves, without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. So as you write the book, which you're writing over this year, we're going to check in with you as to how it's going, because one of the things that's really interesting about this is there's a kind of real-world experiment going on as you're trying to get these ideas down, which is, among other things, the Trump presidency. And as you describe it, so he's carried on with the tactics that got him elected as his tactics, strategy maybe even, of how to govern. But as we all know, those are two completely different things. Governing is not the same as campaigning. And it's often said of American politics, it's in permanent campaign mode, but it really now is mm -hmm. because as you describe it, what this attention deficit world suits is a particular kind of campaign. But I don't think anyone's worked out what particular type of governing suits the attention deficit world. And Trump doesn't seem to be trying to work that out either. He's just trying to turn governing into another form of campaigning. And on the one hand, I completely agree with you. There's a real danger for the opposition of getting caught up in these cycles of outrage. There's also a real danger for Trump that he's terrible at governing. And at some point, as some of the outrage is going to be justified and people aren't going to think, oh, this is just more people screaming abuse at each other online. They're going to say... Yeah, he's awful at being president. Maybe. I mean, I or think maybe not. The assumption is that the assumption is that he has any intention of, of governing. I mean, he never did initially. Like when he entered the campaign, his goal was to come in second for the nomination. Yeah, but it's quite hard to be. I, I agree with you, but it's also really hard to be president and not govern. Or maybe it isn't. Actually, even as we say this, I'm thinking maybe this is how presidencies I, I, yeah. will be. I mean, I think certainly he has to do some amount of that stuff, but. One of the questions I've had, you know, when he got elected was, okay, if his goal has been to just, you know, get as much attention as he can, and he just hacked that game and won that game, what is the new game going to be that he's playing? And, you know, I was thinking it could be that, you know, maximizing the amount of uh, reputation, right? Like making everyone love him, or it could be... That game's um, not going great. It's not, not going great, but yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I think that's one of, kind of one of these questions is what is the game that he's playing now? Because... It, I mean, maybe it's the same game. Maybe he's just still 
trying to get attention because that's that, that's the only game he knows how to play. And actually, I think that one of the things, the ways out of this in the near term, which again, it's like these these kind of cycles of outrage make hard for people to be open to, is if anger, outrage, it, it makes things go viral. It gets attention because it fulfills all of these different psychological needs we have, right? It's like it gives us a sense of kind of moral clarity or solidarity with people, or it's like you know the in-group signaling. What are the things that, the other things that can make things go viral that are actually kind of pro-social or you know on the other end of the spectrum? And from what I know, the research in this area, one of those things is awe. And I've felt that like you know if I could tell Donald Trump to do any one thing, I would tell him to launch a major project of space exploration and pledge to like you know put a person on Mars by the end of his administration. So interestingly, in that context, Dominic Cummings, who was the architect of Brexit and believes that, although he's having some doubts maybe at the moment, but believes that Brexit was a good thing, not least because it liberates the British state to embark on really ambitious kinds of projects that are impossible when you're subject to the European Union. And when he was asked, what kind of projects are you thinking of? He said space exploration. We should, Britain, never mind America, Britain should launch a project to, uh, I think it was to put a space... Space on the moon. Yeah, and then maybe get to Mars and all the rest of it. You know, there are at least some people who are thinking like that. Well, it was interesting. So a couple of weeks ago when Trump tweeted the thing about the news anchor in the U.S. being at Mar-a-Lago, having a, you know, bleeding from a bad <laughs> facelift face or yeah. something, that same week he actually reestablished the, the National Space Council in a press conference. And also I think either he or someone under him proposed a new branch of the military specifically for space, like the Space Corps, I think they were going to call it. And it seems to me that, you know, George Lakoff at Berkeley has typologized Trump's tweets. And some of them are uh, what he calls trial balloons. And I kind of wonder if what Trump was trying to do, if he's getting tired of just outraging everybody, if he's just getting so fatigued by this and seeing all the negative press, that he's looking for these other levers he can pull within the attention economy to make things go viral because he's never evidenced any kind of interest in space in the past, you know. I wonder if that was a trial balloon to see if, you know, if I try to inspire awe in people, can can this work? Because if you read the speech, I mean, it's actually, I mean, I don't know if he wrote it or if someone else wrote it, but it's one of the things I was kind of hoping he might do. And and I think, you know, the media just completely missed it. What they latched onto was in the very last sentence of, of the press conference, he he said something like, is space infinity? It might be infinity. We don't know. It could be. It must be something. Or, you know, it was some kind of verbal infelicity like that. Like, But that was a story and not that, you know, not the actual... But, but that it speaks to your point, which is yeah. in the attention economy, yeah. that doesn't... Merely wanting to colonize space doesn't grab people's attention. Right, right. Because whereas saying that someone's got a bad facelift does. Right, Exactly. Because I think what happened in the election is, is Trump realized like he did better than he thought. Like he trained people too well to be outraged about things. And I wonder if he's training people against him now too well to be outraged and to just immediately look for that most outragey thing. Like one thing I read that was really interesting was that apparently uh, somebody did an analysis of the 10 most famous people in the world. This was a couple of months ago. And they found that Donald Trump was by far the most famous person in the world by, by the amount of free media coverage and dollars he was getting. But he was also more famous than the next nine people combined, I think. That's almost like this, the technique hypnosis uses, is just holding somebody's attention on one you know, piece of information so that all of these avenues of suggestibility and persuasion open up in the periphery. And it almost felt to me, especially a couple months after his election, that, that there was something like 
hypnosis had kind of set in or a sort of a fatigue, mental fatigue of a sort. I really think that there's a lot of dynamics like this that just are not getting, you know, talked about at all. And and I think part of it is just because the dynamics themselves are so compelling that it's it's easy for us to fall into them. Can I go back to to the question that was posed for the prize, which was are digital technologies making politics impossible? And you set out, I think in the essay, a pretty clear sketch of the scale of the problem that is implied by that question. And you say, can we do anything about it? And the, the answer is a provisional yes. And it's provisional, you say, not because I'm unsure of the depth or urgency of the problem, but because I believe its trajectory can still be changed. That, that, that's the last bit that really interested me. You believe that we can do something about this. And I'm wondering where that optimism comes from. You know, part of it comes from seeing seeing how similar issues have been ad- advanced in the past. So I think of things like, you know, privacy, which took work to f- find the right language for, to articulate, uh, to find the right, you know, regulatory frameworks for. Um, things like accessibility, which, you know, wasn't until laws were passed, at least in the U.S., that somebody making a website, you had to make things accessible for blind users, hard of hearing users. And so I think I think there is a precedent for improving there. The other thing I, th- I see, though, is actually the responses of people who are working in, in the tech industry, because, you know, everybody who's in one of these companies, everybody who's a designer, they're also still a user and they're also still living with the effects of these technologies. And there is a desire there to to make things better, to to kind of mitigate these these negative effects. I think we're just at the very early stages right now of finding the language for talking about like, what 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 the problem is. You know, the other thing I think is that like the technology companies and, and designers, they have the right values too. It, it, uh, it's just a matter of how we can sort of help them operationalize those values. Can, can, I, push, can yeah. I push back on that? Sure. I mean, I, I hear what you say about designers wanting to improve user experience and, and do good things on the rest of it. But on the other hand, they work for companies whose business models really depend on making their products, their services more and more addictive. So... Isn't there a, a contradiction there? Well, I think I think part of the the solution here is changing the business models, or at least aligning the business models with human goals, human interests. You know, the aims of democracy to the extent that we can. There are a lot of metaphors one could use for the situation, but one good one I think is the environmental metaphor. So companies were polluting the environment, and we didn't even necessarily have a notion of like the environment as a thing to be protected for a long time. But you know, once we had that, it was like a cultural shift. And once we then could measure the pollution going into this river, then we could kind of create a system where you know those externalities, we could kind of start taking those into account in the broader you know economic view of, of the situation. And so I think that the externalities here are just kind of maybe it's our inner environment, and not our our outer environment. And so I think I think that's a useful guides are the sort of thing we might need to do. But, it, but certainly it's, it's a very multi-leveled solution from culture all the way down to... So, so can I ask you, because we're going to come back to this, and I think this last question I'm going to ask you is the one that we'll need to come back to because it's sort of the chicken and egg version of this, which is what you just described, say, changing the business models of the corporations. Usually the assumption would be that requires politics. It's not just cultural. It's not just economic it requires political intervention. But the premise here is that the thing that is being really hollowed out is politics itself. And so at least potentially this is a different situation, that we might be in an environment where we are for now making impossible the thing that we rely on 
to change the thing that is making politics impossible. I mean, it's that circular thing. And that seems to me to be potentially the biggest danger here. I agree there are lots of historical precedents for many of these things, but there's at least the possibility, and it's true of any political system, that you reach a point where it's not self-correcting. Do you have that fear? So I want to puncture optimism a bit. Do you have that fear? Because the world that you described in some ways does not sound as though it's self-correcting. Um, I mean, I'm sure in some ways it is that Trump can be replaced by someone who's much less Trumpish than Trump. I'm not talking about it in that t sort of electoral cyclical terms. But the attention deficit problem, the escalation of outrage, that I'm outraged by your outrage, you're outraged by my outrage. Is there not at least a danger that that destroys the tools that we need to correct for that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that adds to the urgency of really giving attention to this this issue. And, and I wouldn't claim to have the, the final answer to this right now. But one way I think about it is like, it's a new type of power that we're seeing. I mean, literally, there's a, a group of people in California that could maybe fit in this room that can shape the attentional habits of like over 2 billion people on planet Earth, which, you know, is unprecedented. And I feel like it's a new type of power for which we don't have the systems in place to really hold it to account. I mean, I think it's they're, they're kind of monarchs and we're the serfs and we're at that stage with this stuff. And so I think in the near term, I, to me, I think this question of impossibility that was in the nine dots question, and it gets to your question of cyclicality and kind of like, you know, how do we avoid that paradox? In Roman law, there was something they called the benefit of competence. I think beneficium competentiae, my Latin is rusty, but it was basically if you were a debtor and you owed money to somebody, you couldn't pay it, you know, they could come and take your belongings, but there was a certain set of belongings you couldn't, they couldn't take from you. So like the tools you needed to go about your life, to maybe bootstrap yourself back up. So this, the stuff that they couldn't, you, that couldn't be taken away, it seems to me like the, an immediate question ought to be, is there a kind of benefit of competence for human attention, for human cognitive capacities the stuff that we cannot let the attention economy take away. And like, how do we just protect that, put some bar in place to keep that in the near term? So I think that's a, a sort of a, a stopgap, you know, to, to enable us to go about the, the longer term analysis of this stuff. So James's book is going to be published next year by Cambridge University Press, and it will be free in the sense that it will be open access. So anyone will be able to download it and read it. But James is going to be in Cambridge uh, at points during the year and we're all really interested in this question in some ways it is the most important question of all for a podcast like this one interested in politics and so we're going to come back to this again not just Trump that'll be interesting to see how the Trump conversation looks in six months time but also how some of these technological questions apply including to British politics and elsewhere too so join us for that later in the year We'll be putting out over the summer more of our episodes about some recommended reading, things that we're interested in at the moment, things that we think you might be interested in too. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.